Well, uh, I don't know about your family, but my family, we have these food phases we go through. Anyone have that? There are seasons where a particular food becomes the most desired food, the most treasured food, and the most, more importantly, the most competed for food. Let me give you some examples. There was a phase where we had strawberry cream cheese in the house, and then that phase is over when the strawberry cream cheese didn't look so strawberry anymore. But there was a time when that was very competitive. We wanted to get that. Or poached eggs or Lucky Charms. I'm just kidding. Lucky Charms is not a phase. That's life. Uh, there's old-fashioned, old roats, oatmeal. These have all been these phases for breakfast. It's mostly breakfast-based, uh, as well as the Aldi brand Nutella. Not Nutella, but, you know, the Aldi brand hazelnut chocolate spread. All phases in the house. And the current phase is English muffins for their nooks and crannies, apparently. The English muffins in my house are disappearing at a breakneck speed. Earlier this week, I decided I wanted a late afternoon snack, and I thought, I should probably grab an English muffin while they're still available. I mean, it's like 4.30 in the afternoon, and I'm grabbing a muffin with jam, right? What is that about? But I thought, this is my opportunity. If I wait, there will be none tomorrow. So I grabbed some English muffins, and I put them in the toaster, split it in half, place it in the toaster. Then I went to go get the jam and the butter and the knife and the plate. And before I could, the thing pops up and I thought, wow, that was quick. This toast, this toaster works fast. And I go get the, to I get the, I, I pop it up a little further. I pull it out. And what I have is an English muffin that looks exactly like it was when I put it in there. And it's just slightly warmed. My wife laughs at me and goes, ha, that's kind of how we like our toast. When she says we, it's like her and everyone else in the family. And so... <laughs> Do you like your toast that way, babe? No? Okay. If you're watching online, that's my daughter. She's not sitting with mom tonight. Anyways, so I, 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 my first response was probably not my best response. My first response was like, well, if this is how we like our toast, then let's just save the electricity, put it on a plate, and put it in the window under some direct sunlight, and wait a few minutes, and we're good. Don't go with your first instinct. Be slow to speak what the Bible says. But my next thought was this. I'm like, boy, you know what? I really could have used a heads up. I mean, I wasn't blaming her, but it would have been nice to have a heads up. Like, hey, by the way, Jerome, you know, if you want your toast wreathed on, then just use it. But otherwise, turn it up. So I, so I just said, you know, it'd be nice to have a heads up. It's nice to have a heads up. And when I was saying this thing, I thought to myself, well, that's funny because that's what the text this week is about. Jesus giving his disciples a heads up. Now, heads ups are not, giving, getting a heads up, getting a warning it's not always enjoyable, but it's almost always appreciated. Jesus gives his disciples a heads up in this passage as we move through the book of John. And what he says today is, hey, if you're going to follow me, the world will hate you. It's a heads up, honestly, that the disciples needed to hear because those disciples that were with him in the upper room uh, in, in the farewell discourse that we've been taking a look at in this series, they're just hours away of being scattered. They're hours away from the beginning of what Jesus is talking about right here. See, the heads up for toast would have been a heads up that I could have changed my circumstances. But the heads up Jesus gives in the passage we're going to look at today is a heads up that says, hey, I'm not telling you this so you can change it. I'm telling it so that you can navigate it, so you can endure it, so you come out on the other side. We're looking at this passage not because I chose to. I honestly lost a lot of sleep last night, both on the way to bed and the way out of bed. 
because I'm thinking about this passage, because there's a heaviness to this thing, to be honest with you. But I'm afraid that this, this heads up is something that we as American Christians would rather not acknowledge. Like, we'll, we'll say, yeah, that's true, but we don't necessarily want it to be true, and nor have we really experienced it as true as it is experienced around the world with brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus gives the heads up to his disciples. If you follow me, you will hate, the world will hate you. Now, I know from, from my perspective, when I first come across something like this, my thought is, well, that's not fair. Why would the world hate us? Jesus told us that we are the salt and the light of the world, right? That people will recognize us by our love. Why would people hate us? If you think about Christianity's contribution to society, education, universities built by the, you know, like literacy, thank you to Christianity spread around the world, healthcare, how, think about the hospitals, how many, like, you know, John's atheist hospitals exist? They don't. Civil liberties, the, the elevation of women, and I know there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a message in our society, in our culture, that says that the church, they've, they frame the church to be against women or against other racial equality. I mean, is that the narrative that we get? And we get framed that way? But listen, the things that those people are, are appealing to are based in Scripture. Their desire for equality, their desire for, for racial justice, their desire for, for women's rights, those things Thanks to Christianity, because if Christianity didn't hit the world, they wouldn't even know to, be, to, to complain about those things. So they're framing us. Anyways, that's another sermon altogether. Let me read you a quote. I'm serious. This might be a whole other sermon series. This is a quote by a, a lady named Rebecca McLaughlin. She wrote a book called The Secular Creed. She says this, Christianity is the original source and the firmest foundation for true diversity, equality, and life-transforming love. Man, I, I, I think about the world hating us if we're Jesus' disciples, and I think, it doesn't seem fair. Could they just look at us objectively? See what we've done, what, what, what Christ followers have done through, through 2,000 years of history. Could they just be objective when they evaluate Christianity? But the problem is the world is not objective. And Jesus talks about that in this passage. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 15. Yes, same John chapter 15 we've been in for the last two weeks. We've looked at the vine and the branches. It was a big buildup, I know. I love this passage. But let me give you a little hint. The vine and branches is not necessarily something we've put down now. It still applies as we look into these difficult uh, verses that, that Jesus speaks to his disciples. A little background as you turn there. If you're just joining us, We've been going through the book of John. This is like the second series in our book of John called the book of glory as we look at the, the farewell discourse. Jesus is in the upper room like this last uh, moments with his disciples before his arrest and his crucifixion, giving them instruction on, on what's gonna happen. Like, I'm getting ready to leave you. I want you to abide in me. I'm getting ready to leave you. I want you to love one another. I want, I'm getting ready to leave you. It's a good thing because the, the advocate's coming. That's next week's message. I don't wanna ruin it. But listen, this is what's taking place Jesus is preparing his disciples for what's to take place in just a few hours. It'll start to take place. John writes the book of John, if you remember, his gospel, decades in the late first century, decades after the church has been in existence, decades into the existence of the church and after Christ's resurrection 
and ascension to, to the Father. So John's looking back and remembering Jesus' words and, and at this time, and I think it's really important to remember that for this very message. He's saying, Jesus said it, and then we've lived it, and look, we've lived it for decades now. Let me read it to you, John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if it belonged to you, or if you belonged to it, excuse me. But if you are no longer part of the world, I chose, but you are no longer part of the world, I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is not greater than the master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they will persecute you. And if they had listened to me, they would listen to you. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They would not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Anyone who hates me also hates my father. If I hadn't done such miraculous signs amongst them, that no one else could do, they would not be guilty. But as it is, they have seen everything I did. Yet they still hate me and my father. This fulfills what is written in their scriptures. They hated me without cause. I will send you an advocate, the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the father and will testify all about me. You must also testify about me because you have been with me from the beginning of my ministry. I, now, let me just stop and say, when John wrote this, he wasn't writing chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1, verse... I mean, this is just John's record, so it's, there's a, a famous Bible scholar who said sometimes the chapter divisions are like a scribe writing it, and all of a sudden, they, in, in, a, in, a, in a wagon, they kind of hit a bump, and whoops, and he made a little, you know, like, oops, the chapter division. <laughs> kind of what I think is happening right here. So, so let's keep reading verse 16, chapter 1. Flip that, reverse that. Chapter 16, verse 1. I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith, for you will be expelled from the synagogues, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service for God. This is because they have never known the Father or me. Yes, I'm telling you these things now so that when they happen, you will remember my warning. <clears throat> I didn't tell you earlier because I was going to be with you for a while longer. But as we know, Jesus is leaving Let's talk about this chapter. We'll walk through it, and I'll be quite honest. We're going to walk through the first part of it kind of in this section, and as we apply it, we'll go through the, the last half of this. But let's start in chapter 18. If the world hates you. Now, the purpose of these first few verses is, this, is to eliminate any surprise that would take place when persecution would start. In fact, the word if here is not some sort of hypothetically far-fetched scenario, worst-case scenario. If this happens... I mean, the, the, the structure there in the original language is an if that assumes it's going to happen. It, when this happens, is that if. John says something very similar uh, when he writes his epistle. First John 3.13 says, Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. Now, to the original audience, as I mentioned before, by the time John writes this gospel, they have already been excluded and expelled from the synagogues synagogues. They've already been martyred by the, the, the powers around them. They know firsthand what Jesus is talking about, and so much so that Paul writes this in 2 Timothy 3.12. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Whew, that's a heavy-duty statement. 
And if I could deviate from my notes for a second, it's a heavy-duty statement that's pretty much true of Christianity for 2,000 years, and we live in a weird respite in America. Thank God. But this is not the normal Christian experience. I told you it was kind of heavy, and I didn't sleep last night. Like, I would love to come in here, tell some jokes, feel good, shake hands. But it was next in Scripture. That's the, that's the good thing about preaching through a book. I can't skip stuff if, that you don't like <laughs> or I don't like. But these words here are also a reminder that, of Jesus' rejection and suffering, essentially saying, you're in good company. Think about what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. He gives the Beatitudes and he says this to close. God blesses you and people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. God blesses you. Or your translation says, blessed are you. Be happy about it. Be happy about it. Okay, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm believing. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. Whew, all right. I'm trying to get all this persecution done in one sermon, so I'm taking all these different verses so we don't do it. I'm just saying, it's, it's throughout Scripture. It's not just in this part of John. The, the, the world here that we read, that the word that's translated world, the, the Greek word is, is cosmos, and, and we, we it's, it's not speaking of the planet or the globe. It's, it's the created order that's in rebellion against its maker. The prologue to John, that one sermon with the, with the whiteboard and the weird diagram, remember that weird sermon? That sermon says this in John 1, 9, the one who is the true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came in the world that he created, but the world didn't recognize him. It's not the globe. It's not the earth. It's the, the, the people, the system, the, the, the world system, the people and, and their actions. They did not recognize him. So when John says in chapter 3, when he quotes Jesus, or actually, let's not talk about John chapter 3. Let me talk about John chapter 3. You may remember John chapter 3. If you don't, it's online. You can look through the archives. So when John chapter 3, verse 16 says, God loved the world that he gave his son for it, the world that rejected him, the world that did not recognize him, the world that hates him and will hate us as well, that statement is a statement of God's character. He is the king who desperately loves the rebels outside of the gate who are coming to overthrow him, brokenhearted by the rebellion of the rebels. Then we get to verse 19, and we begin to identify what, what is the reason that the world would hate us. Look at this, verse 19. You are no longer part of the world. Our identity is no longer tied to the world. I came across this. And it comes from D.A. Carson, who's a uh, very respected uh, New Testament scholar. He writes this in reference to this, this, this idea that we're no longer part of the world. Our identity, if you're a Christian, is no longer tied to the world. Your whole life is, not, is, is lived so differently now because you're no longer one of them. We were one of them, but then God transformed us and came into our life. He writes this, the world is a society of rebels and therefore finds it hard to tolerate those who are in joyful allegiance to the king to whom all loyalty is due. Former rebels have, by the grace of the king, been won back to loving allegiance to their rightful monarch. 
are not likely to prove popular to those who persist in rebellion. In other words, we were rebellion rebels outside the gate too. But when we came into Christ and he came into us and the world was like, wait, you're, you're, you're crossing the line. You're, you know, you're no, you, you just abandoned us. We're in this thing together. And we're going to talk about what that thing is in a moment. First Peter says it this way. Ooh, First Peter chapter 4. For those of you who are just like a glutton for punishment on this persecution thing, go read First Peter chapter 4 when you go home today. I'm going to read half of it to you now anyways. But listen, First Peter chapter 4, I'm going to read. I'm going to reference it a couple times. Let me read this, this early part of 1 Peter chapter 4. So, so then, since Christ suffered physical pain, you must arm yourself with the same attitude he had and be ready to suffer. For if you had suffered physically for Christ, you have finished with sin. You won't spend the rest of your life chasing your own desires, but you'll be anxious to do the will of God. See, the rebels are still chasing their own desires, we're no longer tied to the world. You've had enough in the past of the evil things the God, that, that godless people enjoy, their immorality, their lust, their feasting, their drunkenness and wild parties, and their terrible worship of idols. Now, this is a very specific to, but what are the other things that the world has that we've indulged in? Um, of course, your former friends are surprised when you no longer plunge into the flood of wild and destructive things they do. So they slander you. Your former friends are surprised that you are no longer tied to the world. That's the first reason they will hate us. Second reason, Jesus says it. A slave is not greater than its master. Now, he says, remember when I said this? He was actually referring to just earlier that night. He washes the disciples' feet and says, Slaves not greater than the master. If I could humble myself, get down and wash feet, y'all to wash feet too. I don't think he said y'all, but he had just said that in chapter 13. And now he says it again. But instead of washing feet, he's saying it in terms of receiving persecution. It's funny how in, in, in chapter 7, verse 7, he says this. The world can't hate you. Now, this is when the disciples said, Jesus, let's go into Judea. And he's like, no, I'm not going to go. You can go. The world doesn't hate you, but it hates me because I accuse it of doing evil. Notice he said to his disciples, the world doesn't hate you. But by the time we roll around to chapter 15, he's saying, oh, yeah, they're going to hate you too. Something is taking place in these chapters since 7 to 15. It's the association with Jesus that we read in verse 20 that the master, the slave association, that if he's going to do it, then we're not above it, washing feet, being persecuted. But it's not just that association with Jesus. I contend it's a connection with Jesus, which goes back to where we've been for the last two weeks. The vine and the branches. See, your abiding, intimate relationship with Jesus results, what are, what are the things that, that the branch does? What are the, what are the things that we saw in these earlier, this earlier part of John 15? Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, and it results in love, obedience, fruitfulness. So those people who are abiding in Christ and walking in an intimate relationship where his life is lived through us and we are the branches bearing the fruit of the vine, we have the same effect on the world that he did. And they didn't like him, and they won't like us. Listen to what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 
it's funny because I know if you've watched me over the last two and a half years, you've listened to me preach, you're like, boy, we, we kind of stay on one, ta- one text, which I love, but this was just too rich with, with supporting scripture from everywhere. Our lives are like, our lives are a Christ-like fragrance raising, rising up to God, but this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. You abide in Christ, you bear fruit, you love, you obey, and it's perceived differently. Life, death. See, earlier I said, wouldn't it be nice if the world was just objective? Wouldn't it, they could just evaluate what, the, what Christianity has done, how it's benefited the world? And make no mistake, I understand that Christianity has done some things in the name of Christ. People have done some things in the name of Christianity that have not been so hot. I'm not ignorant to that fact. But if you look objectively at what it means and how we live and, and, and the track record, despite some of the embarrassing moments in, throughout Christians, the history of the church, wouldn't it be nice if they could look at us objectively? And the answer is this. The world is not objective about Christianity because Christianity is an obstacle to the world's objective. The world has an objective, so they can no longer be objective when they evaluate us. Christ is an obstacle to the world's objective, and his followers are an obstacle. Look at it in verse 21 of what we just read. They will do all this to you because of me, for they have rejected the one who sent me. They have rejected him, and because they have rejected him, or the reason they rejected, no, they've rejected God. He says they don't know the Father who sent me, but they rejected God because they rejected Jesus' words. The world's objective is rebellion against God. It's those rebels trying to take over that God loves so much. Mankind wants to be its own God. We want autonomy, a freedom to make our own choices, to be both the law and the lawgiver, to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, where I want to do it, to whom and with whom I want to do it with. I want to be the ruling power of my life. The world is that way. Oftentimes so are we because we came out of the world. The world's objective is to find meaning within self, to pursue power, pleasure, possessions, prestige, and purpose. And there's other words that don't start with the letter P, but I went to a Baptist seminary, okay? Just go with it. Ironically, though, what the world thinks is freedom is not freedom at all. And you know this if you've ever gone on a budget, like financially, like life was a mess. I didn't know how much money I had to spend, but I was free to do what I wanted with my money. And you're like, you should go on a budget. And you're like, ah, I don't know if I want to go on a budget. That seems very restrictive. But when you go on a budget and you set your budget, you're free to spend money on what you want to spend. There's a confidence. I could spend this because I have this because it's in my budget. But if you don't have a budget, you don't know how much money you have. You don't know how much money you need. There is there. It's debilitating. That's not freedom at all. So what we think oftentimes is freedom is not freedom at all. It works with your personal budget, and it works with just how you live your life, that freedom that you're chasing. The world is not, the world is not objective about Christianity because Christianity 
is an obstacle to the world's objective. So what do we do about that? If that's true, if it's true, the very first part of this text, if, meaning when, the world hates you, don't be surprised, they hated me too. Let's keep, this is the application points I want you to walk away with. And we're going to spend a little time here, maybe more than I normally do, because the application comes right from the text. Look at me with verses 61 through 4. Let me give you the first point, though. Remember that Jesus said it would happen. Now, as we look at 16, 1 through 4, we see Jesus discuss the topic of persecution that would really affect the 12 being thrown out of synagogues. Don't, he, he's not saying you will be thrown out of synagogues, but they were. It was very specific to, to them. He moved from a general world persecution to religious persecution from the religious leaders. For you will be expelled from the synagogues in the time of uh, and the time is coming when those who kill you will think they are doing a holy service to God. You, you begin to think about Saul persecuting the church. Remember that the 12 are going to be scattered this very night. And while he's speaking specifically to the 12 in their situation and what's going to, what they're about to face and what they will lead others through facing in those first few decades of the church history, he, in this text, he gives us the call, Christians of all times, in all places, to remember. Verse 1 of John 16, I have told you these things so that you won't abandon your faith. These things are in reference to everything he said in 15, that general, world's going to hate you. Nothing to do with synagogues on that point. I told you these things. And then John 16, 4, yes, I'm telling you these things now, that when they happen, you will remember my warning. Remember that Jesus said it would happen. There's something about knowing and having that heads up that prevents us from becoming disillusioned. Disillusionment is that feeling um, of disappointment that the results didn't turn out the way I expected it to. And I think sometimes we come in, especially because we live a pretty comfortable American Christian life. I mean, sometimes we get disillusioned with God when, you know, the air conditioning goes out. How can a good God allow that? Disillusionment. There's something about having that heads up, and he's giving it to them. I'm going to read you, and I promise, I, I said I'm going to read you like a whole lot of 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to close this message reading Peter's encouragement in the face of persecution. That, that'll be the very concluding thing. But let me just tip you off of what we're going to read without me breaking it down. When Peter writes chapter 4, verse 12 through 19, that we'll read to close the service, these are the highlights. If you're suffering for being a Christian, rejoice because God is testing you. Rejoice because you share in Christ's sufferings. Rejoice because God is with you. Rejoice because God is glorified. Rejoice because justice is near. Second thing is this, live by the Spirit's power. Once again, it's in our text, verse 26 to 27. I will send you the advocate. Now, the word there, advocate, is parakletos in, in Greek. It's, the, it's, the, it's, it's in reference to the Holy Spirit, but it's the only place where the, the Greek word for spirit is not used for Holy Spirit. I mean, it, it's unique to just John. John uses this word, and it's hard to translate it perfectly. So some of your translations say, I'm going to send the counselor or the helper or the comforter or the advocate. But the idea comes from like Greek legal term of the one who was called alongside 
the, the Roman equivalent legal term for like a, a, a legal counsel is the, ad, I'm not, my Latin is, if my Greek is like this, my Latin's like advocatus, but you know, it sounds like advocate. That's where we get it. In the book of John, when he uses this word advocate, and we've seen it already when Heather spoke on Mother's Day, chapter 14, the promise of the spirit. We see it today and we're gonna see it coming up. John 14, 26, Jesus teaches that the disciples, teaches the disciples that the, whole, that the advocate brings to their memory what Jesus has said. Here, it bears, it bears witness to a risen Christ. What we're gonna see later in 16 is it convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. There is a partnership though. You notice he's like, the spirit, the advocate's gonna bear witness, but you too will bear witness because you've been with me. There is a partnership that takes place in the face of persecution with the advocate bearing witness and the disciple faithful bearing witness. Think of Jesus' words to the disciples before his ascension in Acts chapter one. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in, Judea, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Faithful witness, bold witness, when we don't have what it takes to be bold. If you think that's about tongues, it's about bold witness. We'll talk about tongues another time, but that's not the, that's not the, the be all end all of this passage, guys. <laughs> the third thing is, oh, gee. Um, you know, you write your notes and you're sitting in your office or you're sitting at your desk at home and you're thinking, oh, I can say this. But it's, it's interesting to, to be here. And I cried like a baby when we did our wedding vows, so maybe that just, I'm, I'm prone to that. Like sobbing, snotty. The preacher gave me a handkerchief and I, and I gave it back. He's like, no, it's cool. You keep it. Third thing, the world is not objective because it has its own objective. What do we do? Pray for the persecuted church. I know many of you have heard that. It's been, in, it's been things that have been shared on social media. It's been in the news. Maybe not to the degree it should be. But it's a very hot topic. If you don't know about the persecuted church, let me give you a quick introduction. It's, it was said in the 1990s that during the 20th century alone, there were more than 26 million documented cases of Christian martyrs. But from AD 33, Christ, the, the life of Christ, the beginning of the church, the, until 1900, all those centuries, lead, centuries leading up the 20th century, there was 14 million cases, which means 65% of all Christians martyred since the church began were killed in the 20th century. And the 21st century, the first two decades, aren't looking much better. It continues to trend. In, in fact, it even intensifies. I, I don't want to overwhelm you with stats, but as I was researching this, man, like 2014, they're like, this is the worst year ever. And there was all these things about persecution of the church in 2014. Then 15, they were like, oh, well, I guess this is the worst year ever. And then 16 came around. Oh, this, I mean, this thing continues to snowball. And we, 
there's nothing, God has blessed us to be where we are. I'm, I'm not shaming us for being Hamilton County Christians. But I think we have a responsibility to pray for our brothers and sisters. 340 million Christians suffer harassment or persecution. Uh, one out of eight Christians suffer severe suffer a severe form of persecution. 75% of all religiously motivated violence and oppression is suffered by Christians. Now it's time to take a missions offering. Do you know in North Korea, Christians are considered hostile elements. It's the, the number one worst uh, place to be a Christian in the world. They're hostile elements that are to be eradicated. In Nigeria, in 2021 alone, 1,470 Christians were murdered and over 2,200 were abducted in just the, actually just the first four months of 2021. You've probably seen on the news, there's unprecedented uh, persecution of Christians in India. I, I could go on. Sudan, Somalia, Pakistan. Uh, honestly, if you, I encourage you to do some research. Uh, open doors to USA.org and persecution.com. That's the Voice of the Martyrs website. It's stunning. And these are aids that help you to pray, tools that help you to, to pray with some knowledge. Um, the fourth thing is this. If, if, if the world is not objective about us, they're going to hate us because they have their own object. This is my favorite one. Don't be a jerk. Don't be a jerk. Comparatively speaking, we have it really easy in America. But that doesn't mean we don't suffer or we never suffer. We face scoffing and mockery. We get passed over for promotions because of our faith, because of our witness. We, we, we get pushed aside socially in the halls of the school. We feel the squeeze of our culture on the church. And we see things in the future not looking as good as it is today. We see, don't we? Don't we kind of look off and say, oh. But comparatively speaking, our burden is light, but it, but it is a burden. So we do the things that we've talked about. We remember what, that Jesus said it's gonna happen. We live by the Spirit's power. We, we even rejoice, like, like Peter says, that we should do. But it is, it is worth pointing out that sometimes we as Christians assume that we are being persecuted for Christ, but we're really just jerks. Christian jerks, but jerks. And it's our behavior that invites the mistreatment when we're obnoxious, offensive, and argumentative. Jesus is speaking about persecution for his name, not our comfort or our preferences or the way it used to be and how I don't want to let go of the world from before. Jesus says, for my name. So if we're going to, if we're going to stand and be faithful witnesses, let's do it as Christ would have us do it. James says this, that we need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. We need to truly listen and not interrupt people. We need to talk less. We need to avoid being belligerent. We need to interact with sensitivity and respect. Not compromising, but with sensitivity and respect. 
we're, we're in a small group. I love small groups. Can I just say thank you to our small group team? There's a, a committee that put that together. Heather is our group's pastor, but um, man, small group's coming to an end this first session. It's coming back in the fall. Be part of one little message. Brownie points for my wife. Um, but we're in a session of, on marriage, and he keeps saying this, this one phrase like, don't use unholy means for righteous goals. Like you're trying to see something good happen, but your methods are terrible. May we as a church not use unholy means for righteous goals. This is not on my notes, and I'm gonna take a risk. Because I've already mentioned it, the, 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 the sense of our society and our culture squeezing on us as the church and 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 our ability to gather and worship and, and the fear of overreach and all the all these things. Like it, I think every American. Every American, whether you're a Christian or not, ought to, ought to fight for the Constitution, the freedom to, to, to worship, our, our freedom of religion. Do it because you're an American. If you're not an American, welcome to America. But if you are an American, uphold the Constitution, man. But can I say this? Be careful that in your zeal for the freedom of religion, you don't lay your religion down and, and I'm going to fight for this. When you're fighting for that, God's not saying, oh yeah, hall pass, act how you want because you're fighting for the freedom of religion. Don't let our zeal for the Constitution be greater than our zeal for the Lord. We don't have the right to stop practicing our religion. Abiding in him, his life through us, bearing fruit, obedience, and love. If you're not a Christian, this was a weird one to come to, huh? so glad you're here and I want to let you know that oh uh, throughout here we've heard uh, some of the stuff that some of the things that I've said you know we get kind of framed and accused of maybe you you think those things I'd love to talk to you um, but really we're here not because we're better than you or we're more righteous than you we're righteous because of Christ's righteousness because we put our faith and trust in him because he lived the life we could not live and he died a death that was meant for us, but he did it in our place. Now, I'll close with 1 Peter. This is Peter to Christians facing persecution. Dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Sounds like Jesus' words. Don't be surprised at fiery trials that you are going through. As if someone's, something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have this wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, or making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name, for the time has come for judgment and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate, fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, then what happens to the godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you.
may we leave this place and believe that. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. Um, thank you for the heads up to the words of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the gift of salvation is a free gift that we've received, but we recognize that following you, it's going to cost something. We, we are privileged, Lord, to, to live in this land despite what feels like is happening all around us compared to those around the world, Lord. Would you help us carry the load you've given us to faithfully proclaim, faithfully proclaim, to bear witness to the hope that we have. God, we do lift up the brothers and sisters around this world who face persecution some paying the ultimate price. It's our prayer, sitting in this church, in our homes, driving our cars, that you would bring relief and end and save and, 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 and spare these people. How humbling it is to know that those people, that they're praying for strength to endure and for your kingdom to be glorified for you to be glorified and your kingdom to advance. May we join them. Would you give our brothers strength, our sisters, the endurance, and may you receive the glory. May your kingdom 